It is good to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue our sermon series through this letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we are looking at verses 26 through 31. As you're finding that passage, I wonder if you could agree with what this pastor wrote after studying what we studied last Lord's Day, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. He penned these words, I found that when I don't feel like gathering with the body of Christ and singing the truths of the gospel, that's when I need it the most. As I begin to sing the truths of scripture, my emotions begin to be shaped by gospel encouragements rather than worldly discouragements. I'm thankful that we have had the privilege of gathering together corporately and worshiping the one true God together today. Now please follow along as I read from God's word starting in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hear the word of the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about this particular passage. I can say definitely after 35 years of pastoral experience that there are no passages in the whole of Scripture which have more frequently troubled and caused them soul agony than the passages in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Large numbers of Christian people are held in bondage by Satan owing to a particular misunderstanding of these statements. I do not say that these are the two most difficult passages in the Bible. I do not regard them as such, but I do assent that they are passages the devil seems to use most frequently in order to distress and to trouble God's children. So I don't know if you remember, if you were with us when we were in Hebrews chapter 6, and then here again in our passage today, it definitely sounds as if one who is a believer can lose their salvation. If kind of just read in passing or taught in different traditions. And what I hope to accomplish this morning as I, by the help of the Spirit, tried in Hebrews chapter 6, 
is to help us see it in context and understand what the author is doing here in pleading and urging the saints of the Lord to persevere in this pilgrimage to heaven. And so as we approach this passage, there is a very specific warning that is laid out by the author of this letter. And I want us, by way of getting there, to remember where we were last week. This warning comes really on the cusp of, if you remember, this transition that happens in verse 19 of this letter, where there was a lot of doctrine being laid out, and then it is like this really beautiful, now we're going to apply it. You have heard these glorious truths, all that Christ has accomplished, all that God has done through his son. Jesus is better, he is superior. And now we're going to see, okay, how does this actually apply to our lives? How then are we to live? And so where we were, this doctrine being applied, if you understand my theology, says the author, in view of what Christ has done in making it possible for sinners like us to stand in God's presence with confidence and forgiveness, then you are to do these three things. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, please don't overlook the word for as our passage begins in verse 26. This is the author's way of telling us why there is such urgency in not neglecting to meet together for mutual encouragement. There is a reason why. It's not just a good idea that he had. In other words, he exhorts us to stir up one another to love and good works and to encourage each other precisely because this is the means by which God has set in place to keep us on the path of perseverance and to help us avoid this scary topic of apostasy. And so it's important for us, again, you hear a word like apostasy, to ground it, to understand it, the nature of apostasy. What is it? Really, it is to understand what the author is saying in this particular context. It is an abandonment of what one has professed. It's a desertion or a departure from one's faith. So at one point in someone's life, they have confessed Christ as Lord. They begin to orient their lives in such a manner that would reflect that confession or that profession. And then at some point, there is a clear abandonment of their profession. They have departed from, one, from what they once uh, held dear and proclaimed to many around them. In verse 26, we see that this is a description of someone who has received the knowledge of the truth. They have made a profession of faith. And, and as we're working through this, we must be clear that it is not true, this is important, it is not true just because you profess Christ, then you are secure and ultimately will be saved. This would be what we would call a carnal security because of maybe some outward 
act that is done in the past, you hear this story all the time, man, when I was eight years old, I walked the aisle, I made my profession of faith, I said the sinner's prayer, and then you look at the the story of their life and there is an, an absence, a complete departure from that profession made long ago living in complete rebellion against God and his ways, but yet they're still clinging to that profession as their their security card or their, their ticket into heaven. And all throughout this letter, if you have missed it again and again, we are to consider, take care, stir one another up, hold each other up, care for one another, not neglect meeting together. All of this is for a reason. It is to persevere in this difficult pilgrimage that we all experience in Christ here on earth. Hebrews 10.26 serves to expose the fact that not everyone who claims to be a Christian actually is a Christian. Only those who persevere or hold their confidence firm to the end are the ones who are actually born again. An expression you may be familiar with, all is not gold that glitters. Not all who profess to receive the gospel are born of God. I think one example in scripture that the Lord Jesus gives us that's probably most, one of the most helpful is the parable of the sower or uh, the parable of the soils. I want you to hear it explained by Christ. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. That's the first kind of soil. As for what was sown on rocky ground, the second, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, the third soil, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, the fourth, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. If you've missed it, the fourth soil is the only one that is describing one who is truly born again. Their heart of stone has been taken out by the work of God miraculously in the new birth and given a heart of flesh. The new covenant that we've been reading about, they're part of the new covenant because they're in union with Christ by faith. That is very different than the first three soils. And on the outside, for a time, it may look like that profession is real and lasting, But when you read verse 26, this is the warning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Here's a question that I think is good to ponder. Why 
does there no longer remain a sacrifice for sins if one goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? I think that's what the author is trying to help the readers and us understand. Why does there no longer remain a sacrifice for sins if one goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? First, we want to look at the, the expression sinning deliberately because I think this, with, with other parts of this passage, this description of sin really can confuse people because just to begin with, if you think about even a believer who, who battles with the flesh, you, you need to be honest with yourself. When you sin, you are, you are acting deliberately in a sense. Like you know that God has said not to do this, but you want it. And so in unbelief, you go after it. And so in, in one sense, that is deliberate. We know what we ought not to do and we do it, or we know what we should do and refrain from actually doing it in obedience. But this sinning deliberately, I think is different than what I just described. It's helpful to look at other parts of scripture and I think by going to the Old Testament and, I, and you, we, we've seen the author of this letter continually quote the Old Testament scriptures. In Numbers 15, for example, you don't have to go there, I'm just gonna kind of sum it up for us. Sins were category, uh, there were two categories. One was unintentional sins and there were intentional sins and they were treated different by God's law. Even with some who sinned intentionally, there were, option, there were, there were given options for repentance, but there was an unintentional, or I'm sorry, there was an intentional sin that, that would really fit this deliberate sinning that we see in Hebrews 10. Uh, it, it, it's the flaunting, deliberate, and this is the phrase, high-handed sin that received the most severe punishment according to God's law. This is why. This is what it says in Hebrews 15. I'm sorry, in Numbers 15. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner reviles the Lord. I want you to hear this description. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be cut off, utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. And so just for a brief moment, what is a high-handed sin? Well, in the, the ancient Near East, you could actually find pictures even now of statues of lowercase g gods or warriors standing with their fists up high above their heads. And that, that position really explains what's going on in someone's heart in this high-handed or sinning deliberately towards God. So with their fist high to the sky, it is literally like a defiance towards God. You could inject these words, I'm going to do what I want to do, try and strike me dead, it does not matter, I am going after what I desire. This same sentiment is echoed in our passage. If we go on sinning deliberately or willfully, what we can be sure of is that this is not an accidental sin, this is a sin done in, in flaunting it, in defiance, open-eyed, you know what you're doing, unremorseful, and effectively it is saying this to Christ, you are 
irrelevant. John Owen, writing about this deliberate sin, he said, the kind of apostasy in view is obstinately, maliciously, from choice, without compulsion or fear, sinning against God. It is not a momentary lapse of faith that the author is talking about. But brothers and sisters, hear this. Nevertheless, such lapses are sin, and we must repent when they occur, lest we remain in them and cut ourselves off from the grace of Christ. So I hope that you're starting to see this sinning deliberately is is some kind of defiance against Christ, our King. The offense is threefold according to our passage. We first see that this offense tramples underfoot the Son of God. And so, the author is addressing those who, by their actions, display a certain attitude of rejection of Jesus. Really, a repudiation of who he says he is. He is the eternal Son of God, incarnate, crucified, risen, and glorified. The one who said, I have made atonement once and for all for sin and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is what the one who goes on sinning deliberately in the context is doing. And I think this is, I pray this is helpful. If you recall, this letter is written to the majority of Hebrew Christians, meaning the gospel has gone forth. This is before AD 70, the destruction of the temple. Some say like around 56 to 58 AD, but you've got these these Hebrews, these Jews coming to faith in Christ. And what does that mean for them? That means they are saying, I no longer belong there. I am now part of the way, part of Christianity. What Christ has said about himself, the Messiah to come, has found its fulfillment in him, and I am following him. With that, we see later in this chapter, the end of chapter 10, a description of all the trials, tribulation, persecution that they endured because of their profession of faith. So they left Judaism to follow the way, and now they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. If you understand the severity, the weight of what they're saying by those actions, by once making a profession of Christ, then repudiating all that he said he has done and is, and going back to Judaism, that continual walking away from the way Christianity and towards what they once were a part of and not repenting and coming back, that is the going on sinning deliberately. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, you know who Christ is, and yet you have spurned him by going, by leaving. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For one who has said, although I have heard that he is the once and for all sacrifice of sins, and all the repetition that happened of the old was just shadows pointing to the substance, I'm going back to the shadow. You've got to feel the weight of that. 
in understanding the trampling underfoot the Son of God. Context matters. Number two, the the second offense, they profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. If the one who has the knowledge of the truth once confessed Christ as, as Lord is now rejecting the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, what other possible sacrifice can there be for sins? Are you going to really go back to Judaism? The author has shown even earlier in this chapter, the blood of bulls and goats could, could never accomplish atone for sins or cleanse the conscience. In chapter 9, we hear, without the shedding of blood, though, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all signs pointed to Christ being the sufficient one to shed his blood once and for all to atone for our sins. You you have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, again, there are lots of thorny parts of this passage. That, That section right there, profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, many, I would say, go astray when they think that a true believer experiencing the sanctification that God can only do profanes the blood of the covenant, then somehow once were saved and are no longer saved. If you read this description as describing a truly regenerate Christian because they have been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, then it really does sound like someone could, could be saved and then lose their salvation. But I actually believe that there are a couple possible meanings here that that don't mean that. Number one, the he profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. That he grammatically could be referring to the individual that the author is talking about or even Jesus Christ himself. The he could be referring to Jesus being sanctified. In Hebrews, we're told he was sanctified in this sense. He was set apart for a particular work that God the Father had called him to do. Profane the blood of the covenant by which he, Christ, was sanctified. If that doesn't necessarily suit you well, there's another option, another way to read this. Number two, if he refers to professing believers, it can also mean simply being set apart as part of the community of faith as one who has shared in the blessings of the Christian community. This is exactly how Hebrews 6, that other really thorny passage, reads. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Someone who has professed faith in Christ, they have tasted, but John Owen would say they never truly They never truly drank the gospel. They didn't drink it in, so to speak. They experience the blessings of being around those who are part of the the new covenant. Think about this. You you probably know those who, who who have been blessed by a local church, have may even made a profession of faith, and then later in their lives completely abandoned it. But for a season, they're experiencing 
the, the blessings of God upon his people by just being in and around his people. And so this, uh, the word sanctified here really could simply just mean profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He was, he was part of that community of believers. He was set apart, so to speak, in God's household. The third offense, this person has outraged the spirit of grace. I hope you're hearing these offenses making the case for why those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Outrage the spirit of grace. Keep in mind as we're looking at this third offense, Christ the King, Christ the Messiah is being trampled underfoot where one who has made a profession of faith walks away from the only one who has made atonement for sin. The work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus even says, he, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me. When he shows us the things of Christ, the Holy Spirit's object is to glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit's object is to make Christ appear to be great and glorious to you and to me. The Lord Jesus is infinitely glorious, and it is the Holy Spirit's desire that we see and know and treasure Christ above all, that we may honor him more and glorify him more. The Holy Spirit takes the person of Christ and shows it to us. The Holy Spirit takes the work of Christ and holds it up and shows it to us. When you walk away from Christ as the only true and sufficient atonement for your sins, you have outraged the spirit of grace. So the consequence of this apostasy we see very clearly the judgment of God is upon that person. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you have repudiated Christ and he is the only way for sins to be forgiven, then there is no other hope of salvation. For it is, it is impossible, again, thinking to Hebrews 6, after having fallen away to be restored, to, to bring them again to repentance, and hear this phrase, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Verse 27, as we think about the judgment of God, it says, fearful expectation of judgment. But there is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Again, I think he's tapping into Old Testament images and phrases. For example, Isaiah 26, 11. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. This fearful expectation of judgment, I, I think it's important for us to note, when we hear the word consume, many of us think we, it's going to completely evaporate into non-existence. It doesn't mean annihilate here. 
And when you think about the judgment of God, eternity in hell for those who do not find salvation in Christ and Christ alone, it is not annihilation. This consuming means swallowed up into suffering of God's judgment forever. The lines are drawn in this verse. An adversary is one who is hostile and opposed to the will of God. It is almost as if one understood and received the truth of the knowledge of what Christ has offered and understood, okay, you were at once at enmity with God, hostile. And what you're saying is now, because of Christ's work, you have been brought into the family of God and no longer a child of wrath, but now a child of God. And you're walking away from that. That enmity that you, the hostility that you experienced outside of Christ, if you're walking away from Christ, hear this verse again, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Christ, finding hope in Christ, he is your advocate. Thinking you can stand before a holy and righteous God without Christ, you are his adversary. Verse 28 and 29 goes on to say, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? There is a lesser to greater argument being laid out here by the author. The punishment for one who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth is said to be worse than that which came upon those who defied and disobeyed the law of God, the law of Moses, during the time of the Old Covenant. Now, to, to really feel the weight of this, remember that the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He is better than, he is greater than, he is superior to all that came before in the Old it only stands to reason that the punishment one would suffer for rejecting Christ would be more severe than the punishment one received for rejecting Moses. There was a whole section where Christ was told to us he is superior to Moses in every way. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What we see in this last part of our passage this morning is that there is certainty of judgment because it is rooted and anchored on the character of God. So far from escaping from Christ the apostate falls into the hands of the living God. He who abandons Christ as his savior only will meet him then as his judge. If some of you are sitting there going, man, that is just not the, the Jesus that I have heard when I've been in Sunday school growing up. For those who only see Jesus as gentle and lowly, you need to read a passage like Revelation 6.15, for example, that describes the wrath of the Lamb. That's not separate, talking about two different aspects of, of a divine being. This is the Lamb who laid down his life 
shed his blood, the perfect atoning sacrifice for sins, there is the wrath of the lamb coming on those who rebel against him, who are defiant towards him, who have not placed their hope and faith in him. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance is what proceeds out of justice. Some hear vengeance, and if we want to take matters into our own hands, our vengeance would not be tethered with justice. It would be tethered with sinful responses. But God is a God of vengeance, and his vengeance is really just an outflow, what proceeds from being perfectly just and holy. The idea of God's wrath upon sin is a biblical truth. John Stott described the wrath of God like this. It is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, remitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Many people do not have this understanding of God in their belief system, in their theology. I want you to really think about this. Do you serve a God in whom you have created? You have defined as who you want him to be? This is a God really created in the image of our felt needs, not the God who reveals himself in history, in his word, in the Lord Jesus Christ. According to scripture, our sin demands a holy God to take action against it. If he is who he says he is, holy, right, just, true. When God instead takes action for us instead of against us, the word grace actually means something. And the infinite worth of Christ's redemption for sinners shines forth. But if you don't have the category of God's wrath against sin, then your understanding of grace has lost its meaning and significance. I think John Piper, who is such a good wordsmith, has said it so well. The love of God provides escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God to vindicate the glory of God in forgiving sinners. That's really the gospel. But for those who spurn the provision that God has made in his Son, there is only a fearful expectation of judgment. It truly is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God outside of Christ. There's a pastor slash artist, rapper, Shy Lin, that many of you are probably familiar with. These lyrics are so good, and I want you to hear them. I'm not going to try to rap them. I am, yeah, you know I can't do that. But I want you to hear the words. Just think I'm like reading poetry to you. They shallow with mirth. They try to flex and rebel. But what you swallow on earth will be digested in hell. It's so profound. You joke around. You'll be broken down. By Christ who holds the crown and sees through you like an ultrasound. I know. He's, he's good. I just read it. But the words are powerful. 
Woe to us if we drink a sea of wrath for a drop of fleeting pleasure. The whole point of this book is to hold Christ up. He is better. He is superior. He is all that you will ever need. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I am sure many of us sitting in this room today have loved ones and friends who once professed Christ as Lord. They received the knowledge of the truth and who now live in open rebellion to God's word. My question is, do we turn a blind eye to their hardness of heart and pretend that all is well just to kind of keep the peace? And let me just rephrase that biblically. That's called peace faking. These warnings are here for a reason. Take them to heart as you read. If you go on sitting deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. I pray that lands on us personally, and then for those who are in Christ, may it land on us for those who we interact with every day who once may have made that profession of faith, received the knowledge of the truth, and are are walking in open rebellion. May we have eyes to see in light of eternity what is going on in their lives right now. Someone who willfully repudiates the person and work of Christ through whom salvation was made possible can expect only judgment. I hope your Bibles are still open. I want to actually draw your attention to verse 39, the way that this chapter ends. The author proceeds to distinguish between two groups in this verse. There are, on the one hand, those who profess but do not have saving faith and thus eventually shrink back or fall away into destruction. On the other hand, if you're looking at that verse... There are those who have saving faith and thus persevere to to the end, to the preserving of their soul. What I want you to, to notice, you will not see a third group, those who have saving faith and then later fall away. And for this, we can only give thanks and praise to the grace of God that preserves his people from falling. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we, in Christ, are those who have faith and persevere their souls. I'm sorry, and preserve their souls. I think think it may be helpful, in closing, to give you two different vantage points. One is God's vantage point, and we get this from Scripture Um, primarily if you're reading through like Romans chapter 8, from his vantage point, he has set his affection upon his people. He foreknew, and those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion upon the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's vantage point. From our vantage point, we need to read this passage. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the truth 
of the word, the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That needs to land on us as a warning. If you go on, this is what will happen. The author of the letter uses this structure to emphasize a specific point to the readers. Do not remain in sin. The warning against sinning deliberately does not mean that the sin that we commit somehow nullifies Jesus' sacrifice for us. Rather, it means that if, we, if you continue in sin and deliberately refuse to repent, if you do not repent of your sins then you essentially reject the gospel and willingly walk down this path towards destruction. I want to end by reading Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers. There's a reason why he says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let us pray. Father, for some... We hear the original audience of Hebrew Christians who left Judaism and became part of the way, following Christ as Lord, and then reverting back, being tempted to go back. And, and for some, there's a, there's a disconnect there. Oh, I'm not, I'm not leaving the religion of Christianity, so, so I'm, I'm okay. Father, May we hear the example of Demas from your word. The Apostle Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Father, we are prone to wander. May we heed this warning. Do not go on sinning deliberately. Father, may our aim be to honor and glorify you, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And when we stumble, as we will stumble, as long as we have breath in our lungs and are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, may we be a people of repentance. God, even now, as the Holy Spirit brings to mind ways in which we have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned against you and others, may we be so quick to repent and run once again to Calvary's cross and proclaim with those who are in heaven with you now, Christ is our King, Christ is our Lord, Christ is our atoning sacrifice. And for those outside of Christ this morning, may they understand the judgment to come. For those who repudiate the Son and say, He is not worthy. He alone is not the one who takes away sins of the world. God, may, be, may this be the day of their repentance and clinging 
to Christ and Christ alone, we pray in his glorious name. Amen.